This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode, I have a bunch of questions from listeners who I will go through. Some of the topics I've explained in detail in their own dedicated episodes, so I will reference those again, but I'll also go through the basic concepts in this episode. This is a two-part series and this is part one of the Q&A session. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And remember, for those of you that are new to the channel, the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, the first question comes from Anon who says, is it better to pay off debt fully versus creating an emergency fund and paying off debt bit by bit? Now, the answer to this question is it depends on the type of debt. Traditionally, people talk about good debt and bad debt. I don't believe in this whole good debt and bad debt concept. Now, there's rubbish debt, there's less rubbish debt, and there's even less rubbish debt. Now, why do I think like that? The problem with debt is it keeps you from growing your wealth on the most part, unless you understand the risk-reward element of it. When people say leverage is the key to wealth building, what they fail to account for or even consider most of the time is risk. I've done a detailed episode about risk versus volatility back in 2019, which was in episode 48, if you're interested. And risk and volatility are not the same thing. Now, I do agree that leverage can magnify your wins. But guess what? It can also magnify your losses. So if you really have toxic debt, like any consumer loans, such as credit cards, personal loans, car loans, practically any loan to do things which cost you money, and completely destroy your wealth, pay it off before you have an emergency fund barring the initial one to $2,000. Then once that rubbish loans are gone, never borrow such money again. Cut up your credit cards because clearly you have not demonstrated behavioral restraint when it comes to using them and then start building your emergency fund. Now the next logical question is, what about pay yourself money? Do you build your emergency fund then pay yourself or do it at the same time. Now, I used to think about building up a three to 12 months of emergency funds was vital before starting to invest. That was my original thinking. But nowadays, I've changed that tune a little bit. I strongly believe you must pay yourself first, then also build your emergency fund, hopefully at the same time. It's tough, I know, but hear me out. One of the biggest patterns I see when I speak to people who have some financial difficulty is they have delayed their pay yourself money and investments until it's a bit later in life, which severely hampers and restricts their ability to build wealth. Because we know 
the only thing that's non-renewable is your time. The other thing is finances is mostly behavioral, which means it's really important to set up those behaviors of investing early in your life, such that it's automated and becomes second nature when you grow into career or have other competing interests like family or kids. Now, do you pay off your mortgage before building your emergency fund? Well, the answer is generally no. The reason being, if you put money towards your principal of your mortgage, it kind of goes into the abyss and the money is not yours anymore unless you withdraw it from the loan again, or have a redraw facility. I think it's much easier to have an offset account and plow money into it, which doubles as an emergency fund, but also offsets the interest on your home loan. This is what I do. The most people would do that as well. This provides liquidity to your money, which means you can withdraw it at any time for emergencies, and the money is readily available for the utmost of emergencies. So, Anon, in summary, number one, get rid of toxic debt. Number two, start investing and building that emergency fund, hopefully together. Now, if you can only do one or the other, then I would err on the side of building that emergency fund first because the risk of losing your money in an asset over the short term is relatively high. Depends on the asset, of course. And also remembering the biggest thing I worry about before building wealth is not losing any money. So protect your downside. That is really important. I can't stress this enough. Number two is coming from Jimmy, who asks, can you talk a little bit about investment bonds for kids? Now, this is a very common question out there and heaps of people like the strategy of this investment bonds. But one of the misconceptions is that investment bonds are tax-free. Well, they're not. But they can be tax-efficient if you're on a higher-than-average marginal tax rate. I've done an episode in detail about investment bonds in episode 87 in my past life as Devraga Personal Finance, if you're interested. But let's run through the concepts one more time. Investment bonds are tax-paid investments. What does that mean? Let's have a look at the traditional investment strategies. Amy is 31 years old and has just had a baby boy. She's keen to start investing for him, so that when he grows up, there is a bit of a nest egg for his education or future home or whatever expenses he may have. Amy looks at investment bonds. She selects an investment bond and starts putting in money regularly. Now, Amy's marginal tax rate is relatively high, at 40%. When the investment bond earn an income, the tax on that income is paid at a company tax rate of 30%, not at their usual marginal tax rate. In fact, Amy doesn't even need to include it in her personal tax returns, because a company that has the investment bonds usually pay the tax from within the investment bond as it earns an income. So, if the investment bond earns, say, $1,000 this financial year, then they pay tax on it of $300 and the $700 stays within the investment bond. Now, this has nothing to do with the investment bond actually rises in value. It just focuses on the income aspect of the investment bond. Now, if Amy had other similar investments outside of the investment bond, she would have needed to declare that extra $1,000 as income and pay a tax rate of up to 40% on that, which is a usual marginal tax rate. So now... Amy would have had to pay $400. So for Amy, having an investment bond has saved her some money in tax. Now remember, investment bonds are not tax-free. They are tax-paid and can be tax-efficient. Now investment bonds are usually designed for long-term investment strategy. Let's call it the 10-year rule, which is technically what they call it too. This is where the term tax-free comes in. 
If you hold an investment bond for at least 10 years, then cash it out and it has risen in value all of those years, you don't have to pay any capital gains tax on it. Now, that's pretty cool when you think about it. This is not a huge sticking point for most long-term investors who are more than happy to leave those bonds alone for a long time. Now, the other confusing element of an investment bond is it's not like a traditional bond, which is a dead instrument, completely different compared to an investment bond, those traditional bonds are. So what happens if you withdraw within the 10 years? Now, there are some rules to know. If you withdraw from the investment bond within the first eight years, then it's completely taxable. The earnings, that is. But you will get a credit of any tax paid, and the difference between the 30% company tax rate and the marginal tax rate will need to be paid by you. Now, if you withdraw in year nine, then only two-thirds of the total earnings is assessable. If you withdraw in year 10, only one-third of the total earnings is assessable. If you withdraw after the 10th year, no portion of the earnings is taxable forever. Now, investment bonds have also something called a 125% rule. I find this rule a bit bizarre, but I suspect these rules exist to ensure people don't abuse the tax advantages. The 10-year advantage period or tax-free rule only works if you stick to the 125% rule. So basically, after the first year, you cannot invest more than 125% of that in year two. Then you can't invest more than 125% of year two in year three. Then 125% of year three into year four and so on and so forth. So there are limits each year how much you can invest, but it rises every year. Now, year one does not have any limits, so it's prudent to ensure you set it up in such a way that year one has the highest investment amount you can possibly do, so it can keep rising after that. Now, if you breach this 125% rule, that is, you invest more than 125% of the previous year in the current year, then the 10-year period resets, which means you need to wait longer to access your investment bond tax-free. Now, to explain all of this, let's use an example to highlight this 125% rule. Amy starts an investment bond in year one, investing $10,000. In year two, she can go up to $12,500. In year three, she can go up to $15,625. In year four, she can go up to $19,531. In year five, she can go up to $24,414. By year 10, she can invest up to $74,506 in that year. By year 15, she can invest up to $227,734 in that year. You can see how it compounds, but it all depends on how much money she invests in year one. The smaller the amount in year one, the smaller the amount in year 15. So what happens if Amy is unable to make an additional contribution in the subsequent year? For example, year one, she invests 10K, but in year two is unable to invest more than $10,000. Unfortunately, even if that happens, her 10-year period will reset. So it's not really conducive to life changes or lifestyle changes. So it doesn't really offer much flexibility, but technically Amy shouldn't stop investing anyway, as per Devaraga philosophy, but I do understand sometimes she may need to. Maternity leave, change of circumstances, life events, catastrophic consequences, whatever it may be. Now, what about investment bonds and estate planning? This is something really interesting. Investment bonds like super don't sit inside a will. They sit outside a will. So when an investor nominates a beneficiary, then that's it. 
It's those beneficiaries of the bonds who will receive them. So useful for blended families or complex estate planning situations, family conflict, etc., etc. And also the beneficiaries will also receive the investment bonds tax-free. This is despite if the 10-year rule has not been met or not. You don't have to worry about granting or probate or administration of your estate. It's easier to claim your benefits. And sometimes you can also limit how much the beneficiary can draw in any given year and have limits, especially if you think they will end up spending all of their proceeds. And this is useful for those people who tend to have bad habits. Now, I hope this clarifies investment bonds. It's quite a popular strategy for parents to invest for their children's future education expenses. Now, just a word of caution, I'm not a financial advisor. So when it comes to estate planning and other things like that, please consult a financial advisor and also a will and estate planning lawyer. Now, the third question I have is from Anon, who wants to know, they're an early career fellow trying to maximally save for a deposit for a house worth probably around 2 to $3 million. What are the pros and cons of exclusively saving for a house deposit and then paying off the loan versus part investing and part saving for a home? Thanks for this question. And at first glance, I know what everyone is thinking. Why would someone commit to a 2 to $3 million home during the times of higher than average interest rates, inflationary presses, rising cost of living? Now, that's a fair point. But might I add, we don't know the whole story here. We don't know their annual family income. It could be very high. And therefore, a $3 million home might be within their monthly after-tax repayment budget of 30%. So without judging that element, let's look at this objective and the primary question that is, should someone save for a house deposit and then buy a home, then start investing or do part of each concurrently? Now, notice the question is not the same as, should I invest my home deposit to get a higher return, then cash it out to pay for the home deposit? The answer to this is categorically no. That's a very high risk strategy and you may lose your capital. Here are the problems overall in buying a home to live in Australia today. Over the past 20 years, wages have actually grown significantly, around 70 to 80%. But over the same 20 years, house prices have grown well over 300%. The size of the gap depends on where you live and where you work, but the trend is pretty much universal. Here's my suggestion, and it's entirely personal. I'm assuming if someone is looking to buy a home for around $3 million, they're likely a high-income earner. So this is where it gets tricky. Do you really want to live in a nice home? Or do you really want to set yourself up for your future self? Essentially, the concept of delayed gratification prevails here. The other thing is you can't eat your home. So eventually, you may be required to sell it, downsize whatever it means, which means essentially during the period of home ownership, it doesn't produce an income. A home costs you money, especially if you live in it. Therefore, in my humble view, a home to live in is not really an asset. It's more of a liability as it costs you money to live in it. Now, I would strongly be considering starting to invest even if you're saving for a house deposit. We know finance is all about behaviours. And I think if you don't start to invest early, it's a huge opportunity cost later in life. And behaviours are hard to change later in life. I would also avoid maximising any mortgage ever. Try and have some gap so in any case something bad happens, you can still cover your mortgage. 
It pains me to say this, but I talk to a lot of doctors all the time who are under immense financial stress because they simply borrowed too much money during the low interest periods. Leverage was all the rage, loans were cheap, money was cheap, and these doctors are under immense pressure to work more, save more, and cut costs. Have you noticed the people that didn't borrow any money or borrow too much or have paid off homes or the people that actually have any loans at all are not complaining of high interest rates? Now, I look at investing as mostly behavioural. If you don't start early, you will forget and even life will happen. You'll have a partner, you may have children, you may have ageing parents or relatives who need support and money will just evaporate. Trust me, this is a real risk. And of course, the dreaded lifestyle creep, which is a massive risk for everyone. And unfortunately, this may not be the answer Anon may wish to hear at this time. What about if Anon was a low-income earner or lower-income earner and wants to buy an affordable home? Is it good to invest part or save part of the deposit? Or can you do both? This is where it gets even more trickier. The saying in money circles is, as you become wealthier, things get cheaper. This is also true for high-income earners where things become cheaper and they may be able to save for a home, deposit and invest part of their savings. If you're not a high-income earner, then it may not be possible to do both. Now, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we got a question about trust and some more things to consider. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, the next question comes from Sridhar, who asks, investing as a trust? That's a great question. I've done a detailed episode on the concept of trusts in episode 61, recorded way back in 2019. If you're interested, many of the subtopics are relevant to this question, but I'll provide a very brief overview in this episode. So what is a trust? A trust is a widely used for business and investment purposes. Rather than individuals holding assets, you can set up a trust which holds assets and those assets can be stocks, bonds, property or whatever those investments are. The people that create the trust are called settlers and the trust is a trustee appointed, basically someone who manages the trust affairs, including their tax affairs. This includes paying tax liabilities. 
and the trust also has beneficiaries. Beneficiaries are the ones who benefit from the assets within that trust. In other words, in addition to the tax obligations which must be met by the trustee, the trustee should also be doing things for the sole benefit of the beneficiaries. Any income generated from the assets within the trust is taxed at the individual beneficiary level and not at the parent trust level. To better explain this, let's just use an example. Amy is a dentist and a partner is a physiotherapist. They decide to start investing under a trust. They called a trust called Trust ABC. The trustee is an individual person. So in this case, let's just say the trustee is person A, but technically can be a proprietary limited as well, but that makes things a bit more complex. They have four children. The children are aged 21, 20, 18, and 19. They're all legally adults. Suppose the trust is investments worth around $5 million, generating an income of $200,000 per year. Let's assume the children are all at uni, so they don't have a job, which means technically they are low-income earners and don't pay any tax. Here are the options. If Amy and her partner did not create a trust and invest under the trust, that $200,000 income will need to be added to their own personal income. Being a dentist and physiotherapist, they will likely be on the top tax bracket or one of the top tax brackets anyway. This means the extra $200,000 needs to be added to the tax files of the person holding it. Now, let's say it's Amy who held it under her own personal name and earned, let's say, $250,000 as a dentist. Then a total income will now be $250,000 as a dentist plus $200,000 income from the $5 million portfolio, which means a total income would be $450,000, which means her tax liabilities will rise. Rather than doing that, now the $200,000 can be split between the four children as they are the beneficiaries since Amy and her partner have decided to invest the $5 million under a trust structure. This means each of the children can have an income of around $50,000, which is split between them. So $200,000 split between four children is $50,000 per child. They each lodge their tax return. Tax on $50,000 is going to be lower compared to the tax on $450,000. You can see how trusts can help save you tax. The trusts usually are called discretionary trusts. So the income splitting is at the discretion of the trustee or whoever is responsible. In fact, any capital gains is also split between the beneficiaries. This is not just income. If the children are under the age of 18, then they can't have income distributed to them tax effectively, and it will automatically be at the highest marginal tax rate. And I think they can do that after $416 distributed each. Now that's the tax side of things, but we also need to consider asset protection, which is one of the other reasons why you might want to wish to invest under a trust structure. Usually, if assets are held under a trust independently away from the individual, then it is protected somewhat by creditors and legal suits. This is especially true for people who are in the business where they have debt or have litigation risk like healthcare professionals. It also means assets within the trust can be passed on between the generations relatively tax effectively. So the asset protection element of trust is often forgotten, even if you have beneficiaries who are minors. Now, to maintain a trust, it does cost some money. You need to lodge tax returns, you need to have compliance fees, you need to have an accountant to manage these things, and overall, the yearly maintenance cost is around $2,000 to $3,500, depending on the accountant, location, and how complex your tax affairs are, and trust affairs are as well. There is a bit of a catch here. 
In February 2022, the ATO looked at this trust distributions to beneficiaries within the family and made some changes. But don't quote me on this. Essentially, in the previous example, there is nothing stopping the children to redirect their $50,000 in income back to their parents. This used to be called ordinary family dealings. And in fact, the money need not even reach the children, although technically it should. It's called the S-100A clause within the ATO legislation. Essentially, currently there are almost a million trust accounts with combined asset values of $2.1 trillion in assets within them. They're trying to crack down on this family redirection of money and basically saying trust income should be taxed at the trustees' marginal income tax rather than beneficiaries, given that most trustees are parents in the family trust situation. Now, this kind of thing only affects people who do the wrong thing. It won't really affect people who genuinely distribute their income to the beneficiaries and maybe Amy's children need the money for their living expenses because remember, they're all university students. And maybe Amy pays the living expenses and the kids reimburse Amy and their parents for the expenses. It all depends on the reasons why you create the trust in the first place. Is it for income distribution or capital gains distribution, which is completely fine, or is it purely for tax avoidance? In Australia... You can't create entities purely and solely for the purpose of tax avoidance. It's illegal. So essentially, with this new ruling, I don't even know if it's live or not, but it's likely will be at some point. They're looking for formal governance when it comes to the tax situation of trusts, so keep records. And they're also looking for warning signs. Is it contrived? Is it artificial? Is it overly complex or contains multiple steps to obscure the truth? A basic objective for the reason for the trust creation is the first place, is tax avoidance. Now, when can this new ruling be retrospectively applied to? At the moment, they're saying this can go back and look up until about 2015. This is at the time of recording in the new financial year of 2024. And it's probably worthwhile reading their draft ruling and look at whether your trust arrangements fits into the red zone, the white zone, the blue zone, or green zone. They've basically identified four different zones of trust structures, and your accountant should be able to help you with this. The bottom line is, don't do things purely for the benefit of a tax advantage. And if you did that, you're likely to be audited, you're likely to raise a red flag, and you're likely to end up in major trouble within the ATO's REMS, whether it be leverage, investing, or tax avoidance. Now, lastly, before we finish up, we have a question from Bernard, who asks, as a new graduate, what are some of the first steps you'd suggest for a financially stable career? First big full-time job. Now, in this particular case, Bernard has not mentioned the type of profession they're going to be in, So that's a really good question. I really thank for the question for Bernard. But I'll basically go through the three A's of any career. I cannot stress this enough. It does come in handy. It'll result in a stable financial future. Obviously not guaranteed, but if you implement it and execute it, it has a pretty good success rate. And this is all assume you enjoy the type of work you do and have a career to look forward to. That is, you must have a career before you implement this 3A strategy. But it also comes in here or there jobs that many students do to get by. So what are the three A's? Availability, affability, and ability. Now, the first A is availability. As part of any career, to achieve financial stability and a great income is to be available. 
being available just means you're helpful. When people call you for help with their job or perhaps covering a roster gap, you don't need to do it yourself. But if you have a suggestion, then it's appreciated. Now, I've done this heaps of times, and when I ring doctors to cover some shifts, I get various responses. Some don't respond after hours, which is fine if they're not on call. Others always say no, so I just don't call them anymore. Others always say yes, so I'm more wary of the risk of burnout. And there are those that provide solutions, which is always helpful. That is, I can't cover the whole shift, but Dev, I'll cover it for you from 3pm. That's the best that I can do. That's fine with me. And I think that sort of proactive, solution-driven availability is very useful. Ultimately, whether we like it or not, our careers are not independent, but are dependent on other people. So it's a big pool of workforce, and I think it's good to be available. But we need to be mindful of the risk of burnout and people-pleasing. That is something we definitely need to be aware of, and I'm aware of it as a boss, because the last thing we want is our workforce to burn out and provide an inferior service and an unsafe service. The next day is affability. The healthcare industry has a fair share of difficult people to work with, and I'm sure other industries are not immune to this. I still remember at a certain major Melbourne hospital as an intern, a certain ward clerk would take my pager away and won't give it back to me unless I finish my discharge summaries. So I was technically grounded at the hospital. She would sit down almost watching me do it. Now, I thought at the time it was a very strange thing to do. Why would anyone do that? I'd be late to go home, and so would this particular ward clerk. But I was an intern, relatively powerless in a major metro Melbourne hospital, and my entire career potentially is dependent on people around me. Like most interns, I just shut up and put up with it. But that person didn't have affability. It is unlikely they would have progressed in their career. They were at their time in their 50s. Which brings me to the next point, albeit an interim point. When someone reaches a job and they don't progress, there's almost certainly a reason for it. Now, I learned very early on in my career, no matter how I was treated, I was always going to be as affable as I possibly could. Treat others with respect as much as possible and try and be as nice and helpful as possible. It is the one factor in my personality which has helped me immensely. Now, I'm not a saint. If you've worked with me, I can be intense to work with. I don't muck around. I'm all about outcomes, goals, and I'm very task-oriented. I maintain lists to do. I need to get my work done for the day. My bed bike is tolerating inefficiency. But I've gotten older. I've realised someone's inefficiency is rarely due to individual reasons. It's almost a systems issue. And the last day is ability. At the end of the day, you need to have skills. If you don't have skills, no matter how much availability or affability you have, it won't be enough. What happens is if you're more available, your ability is likely to improve because you simply work more, learn more and offer more. You develop skills over time. Those skills make you a better worker. Making you better means you get more skills. The power of compounding happens when it comes to your career. Refer to the episode, Accumulative Advantage. I talk about this all the time. Now, I don't have any specific 
other advice without knowing this particular person's career. Now, just a word to non-doctors about all of this. The three A's also apply to you. But I want to explain to you that sometimes, as doctors, we may come across as strong leaders working a million hours a week, but you'll be surprised how fragile some doctors can be. They're humans too. Kids, aspirations, family, partners, parents, life stressors, bills to pay, interest rates rising, cost of living pressures. So I'd encourage everyone to keep an eye out on their nurse, on their doctor, on their healthcare worker, hear them out, their colleague, their friend, just keep an eye out for each other. Although the three A's are really important, I think it's also important to be aware of your mental health and be on the lookout for your colleagues, friends and family. You don't want to do anything to the detriment of your mental health. Now at this stage, I'd like to warn all listeners that the next part of this episode does talk about mental health and the stats involved when it comes to doctors. So it may not be suitable for all listeners. Now, the stats of mental health in the medical community is staggering. It's not just crazy socks for docs day, that's just one day. One in five medical students experience suicidal ideations, that's staggering. Female doctors die by suicide at a rate of 227%, the rate of the general population. Male doctors die by suicide at a rate of 141%, the rate of the general population. One in four junior doctors report suicidal ideation. A one in two junior doctors report very high levels of stress. Junior doctors working long hours doubles their risk of death by suicide. That's significant. There is tremendous stigma for doctors to seek out mental health. It is often misreported if they report their mental health to their GP, then it's a mandatory report to APRA, which is the professional body who oversee healthcare workers in Australia. That's not true. It's only if their work is impaired. In some specialties, there are concerns about professional repercussions for doctors to seek help for mental health. Imagine that. I'm asked to get over it. This happens every single day across Australia, across most hospitals and most practices. In my career, I've counselled and supported at least three to eight doctors who've had suicidal ideations one with very clear plans and two with impending plans. And some of them have access. In my career, I've unfortunately come across at least one doctor who's died by suicide. And they were a junior doctor. It should never, ever happen. So keep an eye out for everyone and keep an eye out for your doctor, your nurse, your healthcare worker, or anyone that you think is at risk of mental illness. Now, if you are suffering from mental illness and having serious thoughts, be sure to reach out. There's plenty of programs out there, Lifeline, Beyond Blue, etc. Now, at this stage, I might take a break and record another episode, which is going to be part two of the Q&A session. So feel free to leave a five-star review on the Apple podcast and whatever podcasting platform you may be using. And uh, if you want to leave five stars on all of the podcasting platforms, that's even better. Um, But please make sure you leave a positive review because I really do put a lot of thought and effort into these episodes and really appreciate any feedback that you may have. 
The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to this podcast, so please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga, and this is My Millennium Money Professional. Until next time, please make sure you stay safe and make sure the people around you are also safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.